we're right in the middle of Moses, you know, giving these uh, commandments and receiving these commandments from the Lord. He's been up on the mountain and come down and found uh, the nation of Israel in sin and, uh, you know, had to deal with all of the outcome. And then the Lord is re- in the midst of renewing uh, that whole uh, covenant and promise uh, with the nation of Israel, the renewal of the covenant as Moses is giving them these commands and uh, he had uh, just talked about how they weren't going to follow after the pagan practices they were going to you know um, offer the the sacrifice of the Passover lamb and uh, you know the first fruits of your land shall bring to the house of the Lord your God in verse 26 you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk we talked about how that was a pagan practice of honoring the fertility gods and you know the lord is essentially saying there do not participate in uh, pagan idolatry and in verse 27 then the lord said to moses write these words for according to the tenor of these words i have made a covenant with you and with israel so he was there with the lord 40 days and 40 nights he neither ate bread nor drank water and he wrote on the tablet the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, uh, miraculously preserved by the Lord. No way that you can go you know, 40 days, 40 nights without food and water. The Lord uh, sustains him. And we see uh, when he comes down uh, that he is actually you know, physically affected by the supernatural presence of the Lord. So we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, sorry, guys. Are the, the lights all the way up or... Mucho grande. So um, one point in verse 27, write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant. Jesus says in the New Testament uh, to the woman at the well, those that worship me someday will, will worship me in spirit and in truth. There's a danger in uh, thinking that somehow in the exact letter of the law, or the exact letter of the word of God, that's where you're going to find your relationship with the Lord. We should all know the word very, very well, but it's the spirit of the truth. You know, the the the, the attitude, the tenor, as he says it here. It's not going to be in the letter of keeping the law that these people find their salvation. Having a discussion, okay, argument with a man recently about He thinks that the Jews have one form of salvation. I think I've talked about this recently and that we as, uh, you know, Gentiles, uh, New Testament Christians, we have a different form of uh, salvation. They don't have salvation through uh, the, the keeping of the law or the observation of any biblical thing. The Jews have the opportunity to be saved the same way we do through God's grace. You go all the way back to the beginning of this faith, the foundation of this faith, Abraham, the scripture even confirms in Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham was saved by grace. Not, not, not through a process of you know, fine-tuning the keeping of each you know, per, you know, perfectly orchestrated letter of the law. It's the tenor of the words, right? You know, Jesus clarifies those things. Don't, you, know, you say, don't murder. I tell you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. I tell you, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, if you've lusted after another person, you've already committed adultery. The tenor, the the actual meaning, the intention 
behind what the Lord is saying. So all the way back here to where they're receiving the law, it's still about the tenor. It began in that, the spirit of the law. What was God's intention? What was he saying? Yes, very specific things like us, very specific things laid out for us. But, you know, more significantly, the the spirit of the law, the intention, uh, the motivation behind it. So now, moving into 3429, uh, was, so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him, uh, meaning when he spoke with God. So when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him for all of the obvious reasons. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. Ten commandments and all that the Lord had spoken. We're going to see the law unfold as we move through the book of Leviticus. And then again in Deuteronomy, we, we see and hear all that the Lord laid uh, to Moses. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. And whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face until he went in to speak with him. Now, I want to uh, point out that, uh, you know, there is the idea amongst certain false teachers that, you know, they've been in the presence of the Lord and they've had similar experiences. You know, Joseph Smith, the founder of you know, Mormonism, you know, insisted that he had the golden tablets, that he'd been in the presence of the angel Moroni, that he'd had all of these divine revelations from the Lord. <clears throat> you know, no shining evidence that he had experienced anything even supernatural like that. You know, you examine what he has to say and you find that it's packed full of lies. You know, uh, Oliver and I were talking about he died in the custody of the United States government, you know, as a prisoner with a gun in his hand. You know what I'm saying? He, he's not someone that we would look at and go, yes, his life exemplified having been in the presence of the Lord. You can go through the list, right? Jim Jones, Guyana, all of the people, you know, a thousand people died there as even mothers poisoned their children to death with cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. You, know, you might want to look that up and, and review the horrendous, you know, claiming, Jim Jones claiming to have been in the presence of God, claiming to have been the Messiah, right? Move forward, some of us are aware of, you know, Waco, Texas, and, uh, you know, David Koresh. He changed his own name to David Koresh uh, so that he would be, you know, a, a, uh, a, you know, in line with King David, and Koresh is the birthplace 
uh, of Jesus. The, the manger is referred to as the Koresh. So he named himself David Koresh and then later claims to be the Messiah as he's molesting the children within the compound. Now, we don't have to sit around and go, now, did, did he really hear from the Lord? Moses comes down and the evidence is there. It's shining out of his life. You can see that he has, in fact, heard from the Lord. Now, this passage here, we're told Moses covered his face so that the people would not be discouraged. The awe that they're experiencing, you know, when I remember the first time I read this, I was thinking, oh, he covered his face you know, as an act of humility so that the people wouldn't be, you know, astonished with him and, and his supernatural experience. Scripture tells us he covered his face because the glory was fading. He didn't want the people to be disheartened with the idea of, oh, it's, it's actually only Moses. You know, he comes down aglow and they're all like, oh, the supernatural dude's back with the law. And, and yet that starts to fade and you start to see is, oh, it's just Moses. He, oh, yeah, it's just the same guy we left Egypt with. Hey, you know, you come in here, something touches your heart. And you're like, yeah, that's like supernatural. That ministered to me. Then you turn around and you see uh, the humanness of the messenger. And you start to think, ah, the message is no good. I, I can see the humanness of the man. It doesn't matter how much the glory fades out of Moses' life. The glory never fades from God's word. The law that he's brought back to these people is perfect. You know, what the anointed messenger of God delivers should be the word of God so that it can't ever be brought into question. So now if we uh, look at chapter 35, uh, you can <clears throat> see Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, these are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. They had to prepare their food. They couldn't cook, had to have everything in order so that they could rest. And again, you know, we hear in the New Testament, Jesus telling us that the, you know, the, the Sabbath was given to us. God didn't create us so that we could be you know, under the burden and the law of the Sabbath. It was so that we could rest and recuperate. And we've talked about that <coughs> at length. Now, that statement, if they don't do it, they're going to be put to death. Um, we've uh, traveled with the students from the school when we had the school going on here. And uh, took them to Jamestown in Virginia. And uh, there they have uh, many of the original uh, ordinances of Jamestown posted. You know, it's just a, uh, a reproduction of what the original rules or laws were inside Jamestown. One of the things that is posted there is that the people of Jamestown will keep the Sabbath under pain of death. If they didn't keep the Sabbath, then they could be put to death. Um, as far as I can tell from talking to the historians that were there and reading everything that I can, that never took place. So in my research, what I discovered, and then we, we talked to the historians at um, 
uh, Plymouth Plantation uh, in Plymouth, Mass. Also, uh, they had a similar law in their uh, community uh, w where there were a few occasions that uh, people didn't honor the Sabbath. It was because uh, there had been a lot of rain and they hadn't been able to tend their fields or you know something had prevented them from being able to do their work. So then when they were able to get back to it, uh, they were not uh, going to church, not being uh, in the congregation because they felt compelled to do their work. And what the church leaders did and what the community leaders did was go to that person and help them with their problem. They would help them till their fields, help them uh, you know, harvest their crops so that that person could be, you know, and they never had anybody, you know, say, uh, you know, I don't love or trust God and I'm not going to, you know, worship and I'm not going to, you know, be there on Sabbath. I'm not going to rest. It was a matter of life's burden compelled them to do something that they shouldn't be doing. And, and isn't that the case, right? We, we have our circumstances and we let them, we let them pull us away within that. I think it's the responsibility of the entire congregation, the body, to help a person honor the Sabbath. You know, not to be legalistic and look at somebody and say, you know, I go to church every service. I barely see you there, you know, once or twice. How, how can we help one another have an appetite, a desire, and the freedom to be in fellowship with the body of Christ? Encouragement rather than, you know, the legal, right, the tenor the tenor of the law, you know, the, the spirit of what God intended. You know, God isn't gleefully waiting for the moment where somebody skips church so he can just pierce them with a lightning bolt. He, he's, he's wanting, you know, to say, oh, I understand, you know, you, you've gotten caught up in earthly things and you need to get your head straight again. So let's, let's do what we can to free you from that burden and get you back into fellowship. The, the tenor of the Lord's heart. Verse 4. Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart. I underlined that. Let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair. Ram's skins, dyed red, badger's skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, for the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and on the breastplate, the garments that the priest uh, was going to wear. So now as part of this worship and the giving of the law, uh, the Lord, through Moses, is encouraging the people to give to the work and the worship of the Lord. Anyone that has a willing heart is what he said there in verse 10. All who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded. All that are gifted artisans. Not a few specific people. There are people who are in the oversight. But anybody that has gift and talent, come and give to the Lord in that regard. The tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its clasps, its boards, its bars, 
its pillars and its sockets. We're going to see that in much more detailed description a little later. The ark and its poles with the mercy seat and the veil of the coverings, the table and its poles, all its utensils, and the showbread made fresh every day so that it was before the Lord. Also, the lampstand for the light, its utensils, its lamps, and the oil for the light, the incense, the altar, its poles, the anointing oil, the sweet incense, and the screen, that is a, a curtain, is what's being described there, for the door at the entrance of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles, all its utensils, and the laver in its base, the hangings of the court, its pillars, their sockets, and the screen from the gate and the court, and the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court, their cords and garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments of Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his son to minister as priests. So you have the high priestly garment, but then there were also the ephod and the garments that the priests who served under the high priest would uh, need also. 3520, and all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing. And they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting for all its service and for the holy garments. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart and brought earrings and nose rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold that is every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. So here we now see Israel is doing what the Lord wants done with the wealth that he provided them with. When they were departing from Egypt, he told them to go amongst the Egyptians and request wealth from them, goods and wares and jewelry and gold and silver because they had been the slaves of Egypt and Egypt had increased its wealth and power on the back of the slave labor of Israel. And God is saying, go collect your stolen wages. And so they leave with all of that wealth. Uh, you can find that passage in Exodus 32, verse 2. They leave with all of that wealth. Unfortunately, it said, Aaron said to them, break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And what does he do with them? He makes the golden calf. He, he builds idolatry with God's wealth that he's provided for his people. So now that that sin is behind them and they are repentant and they're receiving the law through Moses, the command is use that provision in order to build a house of worship for me and, and for the people of Israel. So really a great, a gracious picture of the Lord to be willing to allow them to do that. And every man with whom was found blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, red skins of rams, and badger skins brought them. Everyone who offered an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering. So it was... Also, clear exactly to whom uh, they gave the Lord, you know, not Moses or even the nation. The, the gift is going to the Lord, is what the scripture says. 
continuing in 24, and everyone with whom was found acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. All the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun of blue, uh, purple, and scarlet, and fine linen. Uh, we shouldn't think of that as, you know, the big old fat yarn that, you know, Nana made our hat and our mittens out of. Uh, this, this wool yarn, as it says, even fine thread. They had very refined methods of, of making very skillfully woven fabric. And, uh, you know, what they're doing here is a well-practiced industry that they're providing all of this fine linen with. So all the women who were stirred with wisdom spun yarn of goat's hair, the rulers brought onyx stone, <coughs> stones and the stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate and spices and oil for the light, for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a free will offering to the Lord. All the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring materials for all kinds of work which the Lord, by the hand of Moses, had commanded to be done. Now, yes, it's a commandment, but the willingness that's described in the New Testament is seen here in the Old Testament. God wants these people to willfully participate in this. Uh, <clears throat> the Lord isn't going to hold us hostage or you know, rob us in order to get the things that he wants or commands. Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel. Now, i got to stop right there because I know you guys are serious students of the Scripture. And at some point, if you haven't already discovered, there are those that... Um, insist that the name Bezalel uh, is not actually the man's name, that it's referring to anyone that works with metal, particularly those that work with brass and precious metals. <clears throat> it, it actually seems to be the opposite, and there's a reason I'm telling you this. Uh, it, it seems to be that this was this man's name and that over time, those that began to work in metallurgy like this became known as Bezalel. You know, you know, what you think about the the number of places that Thomas Edison's name is associated with electricity, right? I mean, you know, Southern Edison is a massive, uh, you know, electrical company in Southern California. You find Edison's name attached to all kinds of things because of his association with electricity, bezalel, you know, associated with metallurgy and the working of metal. I, I tell you that because at some point somebody's probably going to want to have an argument about whether this is his name or that was actually, you know, a title of what he did. Who cares? I mean, the scripture is telling us who he is and what he's about to do. So bezalel, the son of Uriah, <coughs> the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he was, he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship. Filled with the Spirit of God to be a welder. Right? I mean, do we think of it that way? Filled with the Spirit of God 
to be a framer, filled with the Spirit of God to be a dishwasher, filled with the Spirit of God to do whatever your job is. You know, so many times we get the impression from Christianity that to be filled with the God, you know, Spirit of God is, you know, you're, <clears throat> it's weird, right? You're, you're, you know, speaking in tongues and prophesying and you get a big throne on the stage and everybody has to, you know, sort of bow when they see you and refer to you as elder or I don't know what. You can be filled with the Spirit of God to be the mother making macaroni and cheese, right? I mean that, right? How many, how many of you guys, you know, walked into motherhood, you ladies walked into motherhood, you know, sleep deprived, you know, three months, four months into, you know, this infant who's now starting to teeth and that's always fun. And, you know, it just, you filled with joy every moment of the day. No, but, but knowing what the scripture says, filled with his spirit, you serve that child and you love that family. And you get over yourself and you do what needs to be done. Filled with the Spirit of God. I, I think it's a shame the way that the church has created a near impossible standard to achieve in order to reach the status of Spirit-filled. You know, I, I know people that, you know, their, their level of being filled with the Spirit today is simply they're not knocking people out and using heroin anymore. And that's, that's the Spirit of God thriving in them. <laughs> saying They're just not stealing all the money out of the till or whatever. They're not slapping their wife around drunk out of their mind. That's what it's filled with the Spirit is doing in the moment. Oh, it, over time, it definitely needs to grow, needs to mature, needs to change, needs to provide more, right? I think that's deeply spiritual when you see somebody. That's just saying, I'm right now, I'm surrendering to Christ this much, as much as I can. You see him 10 years from now, it's a different story, right? And then we see, you know, you, you see him, they come into the church, they're all freaked out. They just, you know, like I said, stop doing drugs and sleeping around. And they're, you know, they've made it through the door and they're sitting in the church. And now they're being told, oh, if you actually want to be spiritual, you got to roll around on the floor like us and babble mindlessly. That, that's when you're filled with spirit. And so then they do it, right? And then they go back home and they find, oh, I'm still the creep I was when I left the house this morning. Filled with the Spirit to be a metallurgist, to do this work of artistry right here. Filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship. To design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting jewels for settings, and carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. And that's, you know, for Bezalel, that's his filled with the Spirit. And he has put in his heart the ability to teach. In him and Aholiab, the son of Ahizamah, of the tribe of Dan, he has filled them with skill to do all manner of work, of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker and blue and purple and scarlet thread, fine linens and weavers, those who do every work and those who design artistic works. Isn't it interesting how you got, you know, this bunch of minor and, uh, you know, lumberjacks and metallurgists over here at the same time 
This guy is also, you know, a weaver and a sower, worker of fine linen. He has wisdom in all of these things. Uh, it's interesting to me how much our enemy polarizes us, right? You get the worship leaders over here that are all wearing, you know, their pointy shoes and their, you know, tight pants and playing guitars. And, and then you got, you know, the, the motorcycle group that can't stand them. Are, are we all of Christ? You know, it, are, are we all one body? Has, has one person been gifted to go do jail ministry while another man is gifted to hold perfect pitch and stand up here and sing? Right? You know, people, you know, talk to me, always want to talk about, you know, oh, you built towers and you worked in the trees. You know, you know, I'll tell you what, sit in this front row and listen to all those guys from As Isaac come here and pour their heart out to the Lord and sing. What a bunch of, you know, cappuccino sipping tight pant wearing weirdos. Love them. Love those guys to death. They love me to death. You know, I'm still in contact with them regularly. Find out what's going on. They send me their newsletters. Our enemy will find the most minor thing that we're hung up on and divide us all from what? Building God's house. Right? Because we're the house of God. My encouragement of you, your encouragement of me, this binds us together. No, I'm totally different than that. Can't have anything to do with that. Got to go down the road. Got to leave. Can't be here. Stupid. For the body to not recognize each of us filled with the Spirit and the ability to teach. That's one of the conditions of an elder in the New Testament. He must be apt to teach, is what Paul told Timothy and Titus. The elder must be apt to teach this man, filled with the spirit of artistry and workmanship, and he's able to teach. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 23 and 24, we've read it many times. It says, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Whatever you're doing. It doesn't say when you finally get to be an elder in the church, then you're really spirit-filled, and then you're doing something for the Lord. Yeah, It's amazing the way the Lord will use us to take care of it. I have got conversation with a guy yesterday about the Lord over the fact that as I'm in the pouring rain coming out of my truck, there's like 25 uh, you know, shopping carts in uh, two handicap spaces. My heart immediately goes to, oh, man, like if my mom was here trying to get into Walmart and this pouring rain, she got in, so I scoop up you know, all these carts and you know, I start trucking across. Guy says something about my working there. I said, oh, I'm, I'm just moving them for and before it's done, we're walking in the store together talking about the Lord because that's what caused me to just move the carts out of the way. I didn't know that was going to be a spirit-filled moment that results in a conversation about the Lord. Where, where is Christ using us? Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. Let him minister to you and through you. Chapter 36, <clears throat> verse 1, in Bezalel, Holyam. Every gifted artist in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do 
all manner of work for service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. They're going to do it. Why? Because I've commanded it and their heart is willing. This needs to take place and it's going to take place because they are responsive to the leading of my spirit. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom. Everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. They received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing. And they spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. What a beautiful picture. Stirred by the Spirit, these people come and everything that is needed is fulfilled. You know, the Lord's Spirit has caused them to respond and provide for the work. We uh, hold to the verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. I've referenced it a couple times this morning. So let each one gives as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God, God wants, you know, if, listen, if we're given to the Lord and it's like, ah, I got to pay my tithe. If that's our approach, we'd be better off just keeping it for ourselves. Really, wholeheartedly. I know that's a dangerous thing for a preacher to say. If you're, if you're going to give, it needs to be out of a cheerful heart. Pray about your heart. See what's going on. You know, if if you're given in a way that isn't willing, joyful, you know, the Lord is going to do such great things with, uh, you know, our time, our resources, our money, all that we give to Him. It's a joyous, cheerful thing. I, Lori and I were talking yesterday about some of the struggles you minister and minister and minister, and you almost feel like, like, is anything happening? And then we get reminding one another about there's this one person. You know, from the jail ministry, there's this one person in that setting. There's this one person. The one person's worth it. You know, if we step into eternity and we get to stare at that face for all of eternity, that face that was headed to hell, then whatever, you know, we've surrendered to Christ, whatever we've gone without, that's a joyful thing. Let that joy be in the present for how it is we're serving and giving to the Lord. So Moses gave a command and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp saying, let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary for the people were restrained from bringing for the materials they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, too much. You know that that's an amazing thing when they get to the point where they go, hey, we you know we really can't put anything else in the bank account. You got to stop giving. What a what a wonderful response to the Holy Spirit. You know nobody's out here. You know Moses isn't declaring it's double tithe Sunday. You know, we're gonna take 
offering at the beginning of service and the end of the service. We know, you know, I had a friend who was in, he brought me the recording. He was in a church and um, they literally had uh, the bookkeeper uh, counting during the service. So early on, they take the offering and they take it out and they count it and they send back out and give the message to the pastor. Oh, no, we're going to take another offering. Because we have a goal, or we are going to reach. Okay, this goes on week after week, and in the end, they're literally saying to people it, on the recording, "It's a Mr. So and So right there in the front row. We know what you make, and we know what you've given this morning. So if you're not going to give any more than that, then you may as well just leave." Some of them gave. Others just stood up with their whole family and walked out the door uh, for the last time to be in that church. To which I said, praise God. <laughs> Amen. Everybody was so startled just a few years later, you know, when the pastor's being prosecuted for embezzling $180,000. You know, just, <gasps> how could that happen? You had no discernment when you were sitting there being ridiculed in front of hundreds of people. Yeah, if, if you want to give to the Lord, give to the Lord. You don't want to give to the Lord, that's between you and the Lord. And that's the way it needs to be. It needs to be that you've settled that in your heart. You've given too much. You might want to turn with me over to the book of Acts. Put your bookmark right there in Exodus. And let's look at Acts chapter 2 briefly. Just a handful of verses really quick. <clears throat> Holy Spirit has fallen upon the body of Christ. 3,000 people come to know the Lord in a single day. A church is starting to really explode and grow. And you get to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the teaching of the apostles, the teaching of God's word, continuously, the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. They're in fellowship. They're eating meals together. They're praying being taught the word of God continuously. When uh, Joe Foch uh, started out with Chuck Smith, Joe Foch is the uh, senior pastor of Calvary Chapel in uh, Philadelphia, and he is uh, the Northeast oversight for all of the Calvaries in the Northeast. And uh, talking to Joe, he was telling us that when they started at Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith was doing 10 chapters a Sunday. You think that I'm long-winded. Ten chapters. They were anxious to sit and be taught the word of God, the apostles' doctrine. I said a Sunday, a week. He was doing ten chapters a week. covering with it. He covered the entire Bible in three years. That You don't do that unless the people are hungry for that. You know, you, you, I can set out to do that, and right away people are going to be weary. <laughs> Say it. Right, I listen to Chuck's sermons, like where I'm at right now. He cover, he covers from uh, I think it's chapter 36 to chapter 40. That's that's this block in 50 minutes. That's just like skipping right along. Ding, 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 you know what I'm saying? The hunger, the appetite for fellowship and prayer in the word of God. Then fear came upon every soul, verse 43 says, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed 
were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided among among all as anyone had need. A big part of that was their mindset was Jesus was going to be back tomorrow. Okay, the next day. All right, the next day. They were anxiously waiting for Jesus' return. So the idea was, we don't need this house anymore. We might as well sell it. Jesus is going to be back any second. So they just lived together communally, and the Lord took care of them. That was actually very good for them. Because as the persecution came and they had to flee, they didn't have any of those possessions to worry about anymore. They didn't have to think about, oh, we're going to leave the house behind. They were already like, ah, well, we already sold the house. Let's go. You know, they're going to kill us. Look, they just killed James. They cut his head off. Time to leave town. God was freeing them. They came and offered so much in the book of Exodus that they had to say, that's too much. You guys got to stop. Here, everybody filled with the Holy Spirit was like, I don't care about earthly possessions anymore. I'm not concerned. I just want to give to the Lord. I want to give to the body of Christ. I want to see that the Lord is blessed in the process. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, that's corporate worship of the church for all of those guys that are out there today saying, oh no, the corporate church wasn't part of the first century church. There was only home churches. No, no, no. The church was meeting every day in the temple and being taught by the apostles, the apostles' doctrine. Every, imagine going to church every day. Every day. And then head off to work. Show up before work. Sit down for an hour or two of Bible study. And then head off to work. That's what these people were doing. You know, Paul shows up, right? He's preaching to the believers. It says they continued till midnight, until Eutychus falls asleep and out the window three stories to the ground and dies. I mean, you're serious about a Bible study if it takes your life. You know what I'm saying? Paul goes down. The Lord resurrects him. Eutychus comes back to Bible study. That's dedication. <coughs> I'd have been here earlier, but I, I was dead. You know, I just... Sorry. A little late. <coughs> it was a big holdup. At the graveyard. So, um, you know, you just finally hear. The willingness, the desire, the heart's desire to know the Lord. Breaking bread house to house, continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. You know, the commitment of those that are filled with the Spirit to worship the Lord and make it possible for others to come and worship the Lord made it that people were coming, daily coming and being added to the church. Now, look at verse 8. Then all the gifted artisans amongst them, I'm sorry, back in Exodus chapter 36, verse 8. Then all the gifted artisans among them who worked on the tabernacle, made ten curtains woven of fine linen. Now, before we get into this, I'll just tell you, there's a lot of repetition here. You got, you got an inner court and an outer court. So you get dimensions and measurements and construction for each. And then you roll over into, this is the plan, then you roll over into the construction. And you get the same explanation over and over again. I'll try to skip along over some of that, but I'll probably give you 
as much detail as possible. So they make the 10 curtains woven of fine linen, blue and purple scarlet thread, with artistic designs of cherubim they made them. So there were literally pictures of angels on the outside of this curtain, the screen wall around it. So we shouldn't ever think that religious pictures and symbols are forbidden by God. He very much endorse, endorses them. You just can't take one of them home and start praying to it. God doesn't want you to create idolatry out of anything. He, he wants your heart to be fastened to him. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits, about 42 feet. The width of each curtain, four cubits, about six feet. The curtains were all the same size. And he coupled five curtains to one another. The other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue yarn. Don't think of that as fine yarn. This is more like coarse, heavy yarn. You think of it more like cord or maybe even rope. It's just artistic and, um, you know, dyed and has this beautiful appearance. So, you know, all of these uh, curtains have these cords so that they can be tied and coupled together. Make the loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain, on the edge of the selvage of one set. Likewise, he did on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set, 50 loops he made on one curtain, 50 loops he made on the edge of the curtain. On the end of the second set, the loops held one curtain to another. He made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains to one another with the clasps that it might be one tabernacle. So fasten and then latch every one of these curtains. So it is a solid panel, very heavy fabric and, and uh, very securely fit together uh, to create a wall on the outside of the tabernacle um, they were uh, they might be one curtain or one tabernacle 3614 he made curtains of goat's hair for the tent over the tabernacle he made <clears throat> 11 curtains the length of each curtain was 30 cubits uh, 45 feet the width of each curtain Four cubits, again, six feet. And the 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set. 50 loops he made on the edge of the curtain. The second set, he also made 50 bronze clasps to couple the tent together that it might be one. Then he made a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and the covering of badger skin above that. I know there's a lot of debate about what is this badger skin. I mean, it, in certain translations, it gets as weird as, uh, you know, right there. It would say porpoise skin. Uh, just You know how readily porpoise are available in the middle of the desert? They're everywhere. So, um I, uh, we don't know. Uh, badger is not a bad interpretation, but it's an animal skin is the point. And, and most significantly what's being told to us is that this, which covers the tabernacle that, you know, that the Ark of the Covenant is in and where the priests work and serve the Lord is, uh, essentially it's almost waterproof. 
it's it's highly water resistant. Uh, it's definitely going to endure whatever degree of rainfall this Middle Eastern region is going to experience. So, you know, the Lord has a very clear plan in uh, developing this tent, this tabernacle. 3620, for the tabernacle, he made boards of acacia wood standing upright. The length of each board was 10 cubits, 15 feet tall. The width of each board, a cubit and a half, two and a quarter feet is what's being described. Each board had two tenons for binding one to another. Clasps that overlap and lock into one another. Thus he made for all the boards of the tabernacle. He made boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side, 40 sockets of silver he made to go under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its tenons and for the other side of the tabernacle, the north side, he made 20 boards and there 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the board. Uh, so each side of the board, you would lock it into this uh, socket. <laughs> for the west side of the tabernacle, he made six boards. He also made two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle, and they were coupled at the bottom and coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus, he made both of them for the two corners. So there were eight boards and their sockets, 16 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. Socket on one side, socket on the other side. Lock the board in, standing 15 feet upright. The next one goes into that same socket and into the next one. So you have all of these sockets where they're locking into and they're coupled together on their own also. This, this is a portable building. They unlock it, break it down, stack it. It's much more lightweight because it's acacia wood overlaid with the precious metal. If it was made of solid precious metal, I mean, it would have been extremely heavy. We're going to talk about the fact you get to the lid, known as the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Its dimensions tell us it weighed between 700 and 750 pounds of solid gold with, with the cherubim that were on top and the, the layer of gold that was there. You make a 15-foot tall board two and a quarter feet wide at a solid metal it's going to be difficult to handle. They make it out of uh, hardwood that is extremely dry, lightweight, overlaid with gold. Uh, unlock it, disassemble it, uh, put it all on its carts, carry it to the next location, put everything up, and you've got you've got a building that is you know transportable. It's ornate, beautiful, brilliant design. So thirty six thirty one, he made bars of acacia wood five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards of the tabernacle on the far side west. He made the middle bar to pass through the boards from one end to the other. He overlaid the boards with gold, made the rings of gold to be holders for the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. So, you're going to see as this goes on, there's a top and a bottom lock on the boards. And then there's this tenon that they lock into as a foundation to set in. And then there's another 
capital that locks onto the top, interlocking the whole structure, but you have that middle section that potentially has flexibility. So there's a bar that slides through and interlocks all of the boards. So it becomes a very rigid wall uh, internally, uh, overlaid with all this uh, precious metal. It's, it's very uh, beautiful to say the least. 3635, he made a veil of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It was worked with an artistic design of cherubim. He made for it four pillars of acacia wood, overlaid them with gold, with their hooks of gold, and he cast four sockets of silver for them. So again, uh, you know, this beautiful veil that is in place, uh, the entryway, uh, in order for this to be you know, ornate, artistic, and beautiful uh, for the people to see and experience. He also, verse 37, made a screen. Again, that would be a curtain or a, a, a doorway, a flap, for the tabernacle door of blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine woven linen made by a weaver and its five pillars with their hooks. And, the, and he overlaid their capitals, that's the, the interlocking placement at the top, and their rings with gold, but their five sockets were bronze. We're going to see bronze a number of times throughout this expression. And bronze, brass, always speaks of judgment, God's judgment in the scripture. You see in the book of Revelation where John sees Jesus, and it says that his feet were of burnished brass, uh, highly polished, gleaming brass. Then you read later that he's treading out the winepress of his wrath with those feet. Then you read later that the the winepress is the blood of the people who are experiencing his judgment. Brass signifies judgment. Within this uh, tabernacle that's being constructed, God's judgment is being avoided through the sacrifice of, of the lamb so that we can enter the glorious beauty that's being reflected of God's presence. His tabernacle here, we're told, is a symbol of his throne room in heaven. So the judgment is always present. The brass and the bronze are always present, but it is the sacrifice that allows us to see the ornate beauty of heaven. Jesus Christ's shed blood, the the one sacrificial lamb to take away the sins of the world. So a little bit tedious, but uh, a very beautiful picture of the Lord's worship and his grace and mercy. Uh, We'll pick up with chapter 37 next week. Shall we stand and pray? (laughs) Don't worry. Much more interesting... uh, Uh, books ahead. I mean, who doesn't just love Deuteronomy? The recounting of the law is not enough. You got to do it two times, you know, Deuteronomy. So this is it. Don't, don't be discouraged. It's, it's a beautiful picture of heaven. I would encourage you if you get time, I would extra credit, go home and uh, read revelation chapter five today. Uh, Get a view of heaven, his presence, you know, let your mind expand. You know, all of the people who've ever been saved by the Lord in His presence, 
just thunderously worshiping the Lord together. That brings a tear to my eye. The thought of being there with all of us and the great mass of saints singing praises to God. That'll be a beautiful day. Very beautiful day. Father, I pray that you would bless us and keep us, watch over us, continue to provide for us, Lord. We need your protection. Lord, protect us from the tempter, the evil one. Lord, that we would follow you closely, that we would run into your arms, that we would draw near to God and the devil would flee from us. Watch over us again, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen.